listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering of Southcrest Baptist Church. To learn more about The Venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. You're going to grab a seat. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8 of Colossians 2 in just a moment. Um, You guys know what the phrase, keep your head on a swivel, means? You guys heard that phrase before? I remember the first time I heard it was uh, playing middle school football, and um, it won't come as a surprise to you that when I was in, I get, well, yeah, I played seventh grade when we could start playing, but seventh grade, uh, kind of like now, I was just a shrimp compared to the eighth graders. And so I remember uh, on special teams, or whatever, we were just really, we were just, uh, oh, what's the word? Tackling dummies, right? Like that's what we were, the little guys. And so I remember for special teams or whatever, the coaches would tell little guys like me, Hayes, keep your head on a swivel because those eighth graders will decleat you. You know what that means? Like they're going to knock you off of your feet. So as you're running down the field, you keep your head on a swivel and you're looking because you don't want to die, right? <laughs> you keep your head on a swivel. I remember, um, I've shared this story with the, with the journey, I believe before several years ago. Again, I only have one life. Sorry. Um, but I remember we were in Kenya, Africa. We had done kind of a mission trip, vision trip with uh, my wife's work with beaten boat and then went on a Safari, and on the last day, we were with our guide, Samson, which is a great name, right, Samson, and he's a big, strong guy, and uh, he was hoping that we could see a cheetah, some cheetahs, and so we went out to, I think it was the border of Tanzania and Kenya, does that sound right, Carrie? Thank you, the border of Tanzania and Kenya, and maybe one other one, I can't remember, anyways, we're there at the border, and uh, we don't see any cheetahs, and so he's like, hey, why don't y'all Let's get out and let's take a picture right here on the border. This would be great right where these countries meet. So we get out of the safari vehicle. Rule number one, you shouldn't break of being on a safari, right? And so we get out of the vehicle and we're getting ready to take this picture. And uh, I think I gave Samson my phone. And so Samson's got my phone and he's looking at it and he kind of looks up over us, like past us. And he said, he is here. (laughs) And we're like, what? He said, he is here. And all of a sudden he looks worried. We turn around, and about 30 or 40 yards, I don't think I'm lying, maybe 50, just to be generous there, somewhere in the range of 30 to 50 yards, there are not just one, but two cheetahs with their heads up over the grass looking at us. (laughs) So I'm ashamed to tell you, I was the first one back in the vehicle. (laughs) Yes, uh, even though there were women and children, I was the first, which I would tell you, it was not the time to worry about being polite. I was the one closest to the door. I just wanted to get in, right? Anyways. The point is, we were very, very glad that Samson had his head on a swivel, right? He's taking this picture, but he realizes that there is danger where we're at, and the danger being two cheetahs, which that would be bad, right? And so he, he, he was watching. He had his head on a swivel. Scripture tells us, as believers, to keep our head on a swivel. Watch out. You're not living paranoid, but to watch out, to be on alert, Because there are those that would seek to destroy you. There are those that would seek to, like a cheetah, to pull you away from Christ. Check this out real quick. We're not going to dive completely in yet, but look at Colossians 2, verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and here's the key, and not according to Christ. 
So see to it. Keep your head on a swivel. Watch out. You're not living paranoid, but you're living with, you're being careful. You're on the lookout. See to it that no one takes you captive. The idea there is literally that they, they're going to kidnap you and, and take you and make you a captive. I think here in the States, typically this kind of thing happens. Like if someone were to walk into your life and just start saying some outlandish things about Jesus, you probably wouldn't believe it. But when they come in and they lure you with things that sound right, they sound like Christianity, but then they pull you away and lure you away into a belief system, into it. This is really about a worldview. So the, the lens through which you see the world he said, they lure you away to a worldview that is, like he says at the end of verse eight, that is not according to Christ. It's not in line with the gospel. It's not against all philosophy, but it's, it's against a philosophy, a worldview that is empty deceit. So it's a worldview, it's a belief system that promises a lot, but delivers nothing. It promises forgiveness, fulfillment, happiness, but it delivers, it gives you nothing. He says that this mindset, this worldview that would lure you away from Christ, it is according to human tradition. So it's built up, it's created, it's crafted by the thoughts of man. And more than that, it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. So unpack that phrase really, really quick. There, there's two kind of ideas here. Elemental being basic principles, meaning so this would be like a more of a pagan religious belief that it's just if you do this, then you get this. If you behave this way, then you get this, which is what we call karma, right? Or elemental spirits could refer, and I, I lean more, Pastor David and I actually both lean more towards this, elemental spirits being demonic spirits. I wholeheartedly believe that any worldview, any religion that is not the gospel, that is not scripture, that is not ultimately Christianity, finds its roots from Satan finds its roots in demonic activity. So he says, be careful, keep your head on a swivel, because there are those that would seek to lure you away from Christ. And really, ultimately, who is it that wants to pull you away from Christ? If you can name one person, what is his name? Satan. But here's the reality. He uses people to do that. If Satan, if Satan or Satan, <laughs> showed up with a pitchfork and big horns, you wouldn't really be lured, right? You'd be like, I think this is evil. This is, this is something wrong about this. But he uses people to lure you away from Christ. Now, I think the, the rest of this passage, he unpacks why you should be on guard, why you should keep your head on a swivel. But before we dig into verses 9 through 12, I want to show you that this false belief, this false worldview is a little closer than, than maybe you think to the church. So the, these stats I'm about to give you are from a study done by Barna, along with Summit Ministries in Colorado. Some of y'all are going to a Summit, I think, this summer, some of the uh, seniors in high school. Um, so a lot of y'all have heard of Summit Ministries, very reputable ministry. Same with Barna, uh, George Barna, doing incredible work on study and statistics and uh, research. And so this is from a study from 2017. So they looked at secularism, as a, a worldview, a belief that really what matters is things that we can touch and see, secular things, so to speak, not divine things, not things that are of God. They give priority to the things you can touch and see, like materialism. So they did a study amongst Christians, Jesus professing Bible, apparently, or uh, self-proclaimed Bible-believing 
Christians. And here is how many people say they would believe in these worldviews that are part of secularism. So they would say, let me say it this way, 10% of Christians would agree with the secular idea that a belief has to be proven by science to know that it's true. 10% of Christians say that for something to actually be true, that what the Bible says actually has to be true, has to be proven by science. Can you prove by science the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. You can't, I can't scientifically, now historically, do I believe it's a fact? For sure. But I can't scientifically go to the lab and prove the resurrection, right? I can't prove that the feeding of the 5,000 happened. But do I still believe it happened? Yes, I do. If you're like, yeah, for sure I do. Yeah, absolutely I do. So I believe that science supports the findings of scripture. I believe that because we should, let me say, we should believe that because God is bigger than this world, because he created it, he can do whatever he dadgum wants when he wants, right? They're called miracles. So I don't buy into the idea that, well, if science confirms it, then I'll believe it. No. Y'all with me? All right, if I chase too many rabbit trails, we're never going to get done. All right, move a little faster. Uh, Second thing about secularism. They say a person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. And 13% of Christians say they agree with that. That's scary. Let me ask you, do we, as Christians, do we believe that what the, that people in our culture get to decide whose life is valuable? Or do we believe that scripture decides? This is the easy one, right? Help me out. Scripture, right? If you're at home watching online, you can talk to me too. Okay. Next one. They, this blows my mind. 20% of Christians would say that meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. Do we as Christians think that you should work hard to make the most of life and that there's purpose in that? Yes. But we believe ultimate purpose is found not in a thing or a job, but it's found in a person, and his name is Jesus. Absolutely. It's not in what you do. It's in who you are in Christ. Another worldview, new spirituality, you may have heard it as called new age religion. 28%, and Lee, this should rock you a little bit, and if this is you, realize that you've bought into a faulty worldview. 28% of Christians say that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. 28%. If that's true, if it's true that we all, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, if it's true that we all pray to the same God, then God is a liar. Why did he give all these different religions that teach different things? Or God is absolutely crazy, like nutso. And why would you want to worship him? We don't believe it. We believe there is one God and we find him in scripture. Amen. When we pray, we're not all praying to the same one. Uh, I'm going to skip some of these for the sake of time. They say, uh, if you do good, you, you will receive good. If you do bad, you will receive bad. 32% of Christians believe that, that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Now, we do believe there are consequences for your actions. But if that, if that is solely true, that you just get what you deserve, then we need to throw out the word grace in the Bible. Grace is God giving you what? What you don't deserve. Mercy is him graciously, lovingly giving you the things you don't deserve because you've not been good, but he mercifully bestows on you gracious gifts. 
loving gifts. We don't believe that in a, in a karma world, this is 32% of Christians do, or self-proclaimed Christians. One more, postmodernism. And this one, this is the world we live in. We live in a postmodern world. So some of these numbers shouldn't really surprise you. 19% of Christians say that no one can know for certain what meaning and purpose there is to life. Man, like, I would not want to live that kind of life. If I can't know for certainty that this is God's word and that he is true and that he is a rock and that I can live my life according to him, like, how do I do anything? Almost 20% say we can't know for sure what is true. 23, this should not surprise you, and this sounds like language we hear a lot. 23% say what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. You know how to test that? When someone says, and this happens, I've never done this, but uh, my professor in college, Dr. Rathel, suggested this. He said, when you meet someone who says they're a postmodern and they believe that your truth is your truth and their truth is their truth, he said, what you should do is go out, and you shouldn't really do this, but he said, go out and key their car. <laughs> and then if they get mad, you just say, well, bro, what's true for me is true for me. And I like keying cars, so you can't be mad about it. You know what that's going to reveal? Again, I'm not saying you should really key someone's car. But you know what's going to happen when you do that? Or if you did that, it would reveal that there is an agreed upon right and wrong. If I go punch somebody in the face who says they don't believe in absolute truth is our relative, you go punch them in the face, they're not going to go, hey, man, do what feels good to you. <laughs> they're not going to do that. Very similar, 15% uh, of those in the church, of Christians, would say if you believe, excuse me, if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, it is wrong. You know what the problem is with that mindset? To say that, you know, I'm a Christian, but I also believe that if your beliefs or my beliefs offend somebody, then it must be wrong. Then you have to throw Jesus out of the Bible. Did Jesus ever offend people? Yes. And we're so caught up in Jesus is loving. And he is loving. But Jesus is also full of his grace and what? Truth. He told people what was up. Right? He wasn't just all, like if you're an Enneagram person, he wasn't always a nine. Like, I just want to be at peace with people. No, he was an eight. He wasn't afraid of confrontation. If you don't know what the Enneagram is, don't stress out about that. <laughs> if you say that your beliefs are only what make you feel good, then you've, you've ignored scripture. I share all those stats to show you that this faulty worldview belief system that's not in the line with Christ is a little closer to the church than maybe we thought. Y'all with me? It's not good news, I know. I think I would add two to that that, I find, that we find in the church. One is moralism. And there, there was threads of that in those stats I just read, but moralism, the idea that if I do good enough, I can save myself. I'm, if I'm a good person, God will love me. The problem is that's not according to, to the Bible. I remember one time I was at a camp and heard uh, a young college student tell the kids, if you love God, he'll love you. That is from Satan. That's not the gospel. God loves you even though you hate him. Amen? That's the gospel. Amen, little one. <laughs> so moralism. The other one it would be, uh, this is probably not the right accurate word, but like happiness. The idea that I, I should just do what makes me feel good. I think that's prevalent in the church. I don't think Jesus felt good when he, hang, when he hung on the cross, but it was necessary in God's plan of salvation. He says, 
watch out. Be on guard. Keep your head on a swivel because there are those that want to lure you away from Christ. That's a reality we face today in the church as much as ever before. In the rest of the text, he's going to say why you should keep your head on a swivel. What's so important that you cling to Christ and don't let someone lure you away from Christ? We're going to see three things. Check out verse nine with me. For in him, so don't, look, don't let someone lure you away, keep your head on a swivel, because, verse nine, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I'm gonna say it this way. Jesus is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior because he is 100% God, 100% man. It says that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Christ, you get all of God. He is perfectly God, but he's also perfectly man as your representative. So what does that mean? Why did I say he's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior? Only God could save us. God being, Jesus being all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly in control, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. So he put on flesh, came to this earth as a man to be our representative. So just as we read in scripture is that Adam was a representative for us, that we find our sin nature ultimately in Adam, that in Christ, Jesus is our representative. So when he died on the cross, he was our representative. What a beautiful picture that God himself put on flesh and blood to be the perfect sacrifice for us. No man, no woman could be an all-sufficient savior apart from Christ because we're all flawed. Like if I tried to die for someone, the problem is I'm dying for my own sins because I'm a messed up person. Jesus, as God, when he died, paid the price for our sin. Y'all tracking with me? He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I think about it this way. Um, just because someone wants to be something doesn't mean they can be something. So I, I think basketball is great. Like, man, I wish, I hope the NBA season comes back around. Go LeBron, go Lakers. Um, <laughs> get some head notes. Um, as much as I love basketball, if I went to an NBA stadium, went to the team and said, hey, look, I really want to play basketball. They're immediately just going to look at me and say, no. <laughs> Why? Too short. Prior to uh, no comments over there. <laughs> I, I'm too short, right? I, to play in the NBA at 5'11", 10 and a half, <laughs> I'm not going to get to play. I could, I could, I could, uh, there's a buck. <laughs> get out of here, fool. <laughs> um, I could, I could bring up my resume and be like, look, let me show you my basketball resume. And they would, they would look at it and see, wow, when, when you were in fifth grade, you played upward. Wow. You, you actually, you guys won one game. True story. Who won one game? Like, how does that happen in upward? It's supposed to be like, we're all equal and we got killed every game. We didn't have Pam Copeland in charge. That was the problem. Anyways, if I showed them my resume, it's going to fall short in so many ways. It's going to be like, hey, you have the desire, but there's a lot of buts here. I'm like, but the problem is you're too short, but you don't have enough experience, but you can't jump at like three inches off the ground, right? There's a lot of problems here. Anyone, Buddha, Muhammad, who would try to say this 
is the way to God. The problem is their resume falls short. They're what we call sinners like you and me. Jesus is the only one who has the perfect resume. 100% God, 100% man. 100% God, meaning he can actually pardon. He actually has the power to forgive. 100% man, meaning that he actually has the power, the capacity to be our representative, to pay the price for our sins. Jesus is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. Anyone else who would line up to say, I can be your savior, their resume is going to fall short. Not just a person, even an idea. Moralism brings forth the resume and says, hey, maybe if you try to be good enough, you can be saved. You can be right with God. The problem is, scripture teaches us, we're all broken sinners. Happiness would try to bring forth its resume and say, hey, you just need to try to be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll find, quote, salvation. The problem is, happiness does not deal with sin. Jesus, as the perfect God-man is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. So Paul says, why would you go somewhere else? Don't let someone pull you away from him when he is the only one that has the ability, the capacity, the resume to provide salvation for your souls. Why would you go anywhere else? And because he's perfectly God, he can perfectly fill you. Look at this second one. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The idea here is that you are complete in Christ. Why would you go to any other thing, any other worldview, any other religion when you are complete in Christ? When it says you have been filled, filled in him, it's not just the idea of contentment, but that literally, if, if you had your, your bucket of spirituality, you are as spiritually complete as you will ever be in him. It doesn't get any better. Because God has perfectly revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, it is ludicrous to try to go and turn to something else or someone else for satisfaction or for spiritual depth when it's perfectly and completely revealed in Christ. And he has perfectly and completely filled you with himself. Does that make sense? Spiritually, you have everything you need in Jesus. And if you were to say, well, I don't know, but I kind of like, I, I, maybe it's Jesus plus like this other religion a little bit. I like to dabble in this other religion. I like to dab dabble in this other worldview. I think it combats that with the end of verse 10 when he says, Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. Meaning Jesus is over every kingdom, every spiritual realm. He is the Lord. He is the head. He is the king. So why would you settle for something less when you have the best, right? I'm not trading in my filet mignon for a whopper, right? <laughs> You've, you have all you need in Christ. Why would you settle for something less when you have the best? You're complete in Christ. So don't go somewhere else. I don't know if y'all know this, we just, on the other side of Memphis, the church has what we call the Mission House a duplex there. The Louders lived there for a little bit. Um, I lived there for a little bit when I first moved to Lubbock from seminary. And what's really cool is uh, typically what it's used for is missionaries that are coming back to the States for a little bit. It's a place where they can go and rest. What I found when I got to live there for a few months when I first moved from seminary and was trying to get my feet on the ground, church was so gracious, let me stay there. But what I found was, the mission house is completely 
furnished. I moved from seminary, didn't have anything. And when I got here, moved in the, into the mission house, they had beds, they had bedding, which coming from being in college and seminary was like, wow, real sheets. This is awesome, right? Um, they had, even now, there's, there's couches, there's a TV. Had, it had been six years since I'd had a TV in the place I lived. It's not really a good thing, but like, I mean, it wasn't a good thing to get one. But anyways, I had TV. And what was so cool, I mean, hopefully y'all know this. Y'all are very generous people. When uh, I came on staff here, uh, y'all did like an old school pounding. You know what that means? So I got all kinds of food and even some gift cards to go buy food. So I get in this mission house the first few months I'm living here, and I literally have everything. Like I would think, well, man, if I'm going to cook this, maybe I need this. I would go to the kitchen, and there was pots and pans and a toaster and a bowl for my cereal that I cooked every night, right? Like, uh, thank God I got married. Um, they had everything I needed. To un- unveil that story a little more, when, uh, so Lauren and I, before we got married, I went ahead and moved into Dakota Arms' apartment, and I was so excited about, man, it's my first time, I'm not in a dorm, I'm not in a mission house, I'm going to be in my own apartment. This is going to be so exciting. What well, was revealed when I moved to the apartment, thinking this is going to be better, because I'm going to an apartment, I can, be, I can be in charge of the apartment. What I was reminded of is that I had nothing. <laughs> When I got to the apartment, I had a lawn chair, <laughs> very cozy. Jerry Newman and Sally Newman let me borrow a trundle bed. Is that, you know what that, it's like a little, it's kind of like a futon, I guess. Like it's, it's not known for being comfortable. Let me borrow a trundle bed. I had one bowl, one spoon, one fork, and some plastic cups. Of course, I had my clothes, but like that was the furniture I had. I did have one pan. <laughs> The good thing is it makes you do your dishes regularly if you only have one pan. But I got to the apartment. I've been so excited when I got there. I was like, I, I had it so good at the mission house. They wouldn't let me move back in. I'm kidding. I had it so, I thought it was going to be better over here, but I was completely filled up with all I needed at the mission house. I thought it would be better, and I was only let down to realize I, I got nothing. Thankfully, I got married and Lauren bought some furniture. (laughs) When you buy the lie that something would be better away from Christ, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to go to this new worldview, to this religion. When you buy that lie and you get lured away, you're always going to be let down to realize you had it way better with Christ. Track it with me? That you had all that you need to live the spiritual life, to have spiritual death. You had, not death, depth. All that you needed for spiritual depth in Christ. And when you get lured away to some other religion, some other worldview, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be let down. I mean, I think so many of us, we can, we can listen to a podcast or listen to a book or read a book or like watching a, a talk show, whatever it may be, because it, it, it feels like it's going to fill up this lacking in our life. It feels like, man, maybe this is going to feel good. Maybe it's going to complete me. The reality is you're already complete in Christ. And if you would say, well, I like listening to that, that podcast that doesn't really line up with the Bible. I like listening to that talk show that doesn't really line up with the Bible because it makes me feel good. The problem is <laughs> good communication does not make bad content okay. Satan is a really good communicator, but he has terrible content. 
Don't allow something into your life thinking, oh, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel spiritually complete. It makes me feel better as a person. When the reality is, just because it's good communication doesn't mean it's good for you. You are complete in Christ. He is all you need. So again, the application is keep your head on a swivel. Be careful what you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're watching, because people, because of Satan, want to lure you away from Christ, and you're already complete in him. Now, there's one more reason that Paul gives of why we keep our head on a swivel. And I, this is probably the thickest, like it's, it's kind of chewy, but there's some really good stuff here, and I think we maybe need to lean into it the most. Verse 11, in him, referring to Christ, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's only by the blood of Jesus that you belong to Jesus. Let's unpack these verses. It's only by the blood of Jesus that you belong to Jesus. So again, he's talking to believers, verse 11. In him, you also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So in the Old Testament, circumcision being a sign, a really, you could say even a symbol of the covenant of being set apart, cut off for the Lord, that you are to have a relationship with him. You're, so you're set apart from you're supposed to be set apart from your sin to walk with God. And it was really always, even circumcision in the Old Testament was always about the heart, not just about an outward sign. It was to be a symbol of being, belonging to the family of God. He says, in Christ, looking on the New Testament now, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he says, this is not about some outward sign. This is about what actually matters about the human heart. So let's walk through this carefully. You've been circumcised spiritually, meaning so you've been set apart for Christ, designated to belong to the family of God. Continuing in verse 11, by putting off the body of the flesh. So the barrier of sin that separated you from God has been removed. It's been cut off. It's been moved away. And not only that, the, really the dominion and power of sin over your life has been cut off, has been moved away, has been put off. How is that possible? So how is it possible that the barrier between me and God of my sin has been put off? And that Stupid moth. And that the power of sin over my life has been put away, has been put off. How is that possible? He says, by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world does that mean? It is a really graphic picture that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, him as our representative, as the perfect God, man, 100% God, 100% man, that when he was on the cross, as our representative, when he took the penalty for our sin, that the barrier of sin between mankind and God was stripped away, was cut off as he was beaten to a bloody pulp and nailed to that cross. That what separated us from belonging to the family of God was removed, was cut off by the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you've been brought in to be part of the family of God, to be, to be separated and to be set apart, to belong to God. It's through the death 
of Jesus Christ. And then he kind of gives this other picture in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So again, he's not saying circumcision and baptism are the same thing, but baptism, and I think he's using it kind of all-inclusively here to revert to being saved, that in Christ, spiritually, just like baptism represents, when you come to Christ, you die to your old self and have a new life in Christ. So you are cut off and separated from your sinful flesh. It no longer has power over you, but now you have a new resurrection, victorious life in Jesus Christ. And again, how is that possible? The, the, the middle of verse 12, he says, through faith. So trusting that Jesus did, that Jesus accomplished what I could never accomplish. So Romans says that what the law was powerless to do, Christ did perfectly. Though I could not earn something, I could not prove something, I could not keep my salvation, I can't earn it because I'm not good. I'm a messed up, broken human being. I can't remove the barrier of sin from my life. Jesus accomplished for me. And so when I place my faith and trust in him, that barrier of sin is no longer in the way. And now I can have a relationship with Christ. It's only by the blood of Jesus that you belong to Jesus. Amen? So to use a, a picture here, Thanks, uh, Zach, for setting this up. Um, <laughs> so all worldviews, all religions, apart from Christ, ultimately, and this is, like, this, this is a fact, like uh, when I go to India or have been to India, some of my buddies there that grew up Muslim would say, without a doubt, and this is, again, this is, you could read this online, this is not a secret, but they've lived it, they've been in it in um, northwestern India, close to Afghanistan, or uh, Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan. They would say, yeah, even the most serious Muslims aren't really sure where they stand with God or Allah to them because it's all works-based. What scripture teaches is that all worldviews, all religion is like this. You're trying to get to God. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. You know what? I'm going to kick it up another gear, try a little bit harder because I want to get to God. I'm going to earn something. I'm going to prove something. I'm giving it all I got. But the reality is you get nowhere. You can't earn something. You can't try to prove something. You can't try to strip, strip away the barrier of sin between you and God because you're a broken human. So again, all you're striving, all you're trying gets you absolutely nowhere. So Paul says, and really God says, don't let someone pull you away from, oh, hello. Don't let someone pull you away from the only one that can actually bring you into a relationship with God. Because all your striving and turning to any other religion or worldview and trying to do things their way leaves you stranded and stuck and getting nowhere. But when you turn to Jesus, you can actually belong to the family of God. So the, the, really, I think the question of most that Paul's asking, why would you turn somewhere else? Why would you let someone... Why would you let someone lead you astray from Christ, lure you away from Christ when he's the only one that can save and redeem you and make you belong to the family of God? Don't be fooled and be pulled away from the gospel. Don't be fooled and be pulled away from Jesus. He's the only one who can save and redeem you. And if you say, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a mess. I don't know if Jesus could love me. That's why I'm trying so hard. And that's why I feel like I have to do all these things to earn my salvation because I just feel like I'm broken. The, 
I would ask you, are you trusting in your own goodness? Are you trusting in the goodness of Jesus? And that he loves you regardless of how broken and messed up you are. Trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in him? I'll finish with with this thought. I was telling uh, Zach and Jackson earlier this week, I think something really cool about this passage is the argument the Holy Spirit gave to Paul as he inspired this of why you should keep your head on a swivel and not let someone pull you away from Christ. It, it doesn't say, because all those other people are stupid, don't listen to them. <laughs> They're just silly. Don't listen to them, ignore them. You're better than them. No. The argument he makes is just to make much of Jesus. See, it's not a very convincing or compelling argument to say, they're, they're bad, don't listen to them. No, he just says, why would you turn away from Jesus? Why would you miss out on him? He's the best. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. You are complete in him. It's only by his blood that you can belong to the family of God. So maybe you could say it this way. The best way to prevent being taken captive is to be captivated. The best way to fight being taken captive by a false worldview, a false religion, a false idea, something that's not according to Christ, is to just be captivated by Jesus. It makes me think, uh, Lauren and I had the opportunity to go to uh, ah, Yosemite Falls, up in Yosemite in California. Crazy beautiful. And I, I forgot to put a picture up on the screen, maybe sometime later. Anyways, you walk up this waterfall, and it, it's like deafening the sound of it. And it's, it's beautiful. And as you're standing at the foot of it, the mist is covering you because it's so powerful. Even like, I mean, I say the foot, you can be 50 yards away, and there's just kind of this mist in the air because the waterfall is so powerful. You, you know what? Happened in that moment, I can guarantee you, actually, I, I know because I saw it. No one, even though people were taking pictures with their phone, no one was on their phone on Instagram, right? Cool, check out this post I did, right? No, you were either taking a picture of the waterfall or you were just staring at the waterfall. No one was bothered by trivial, meaningless things because they were captivated by the beauty of this waterfall. The best way to not be captivated or taken captive by trivial, empty, deceitful things that promise a lot but give nothing, the best way to keep your head on a swivel is just to sit at the amazing, powerful, beautiful, awe-inspiring feet of Jesus. What's one of the best ways to do that? To get in Scripture. I believe that as we read the words of God, it's like sitting at the foot of that waterfall. I sit at the foot of Jesus, and his mist just kind of envelops me. I'm not trying to be weird or mystical there, but his spirit, man, I get to enjoy being in his presence. How do you fight being taken captive by false ideas? Learn to be captivated by Jesus. Because he is what you're looking for. He is better than anything this world has to offer. We believe that God's word demands a response. Not like it demands it. Like it's just, it's so powerful, it's so true. We'd be fools not to respond. So a couple of things. If you don't know Christ this morning, man, the invitation to you is to turn to Jesus, to realize that you can belong to Jesus by the blood of Jesus. Simply that means to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and realize that you can place your faith and trust in him and what he did on the cross. Say, Jesus, I wanna give you my life. I realize I'm a broken, messed up person, but I wanna trust you. I want you to be in charge of my life. 
If you do that this morning, if you make that your prayer, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. If, if you're watching online, you can reach out to us there or send us a message. We'd love to see what God is doing and making you a child of the King. For Christians, I think two things here. I think probably the most susceptible people to being led astray, being let, uh, taken captive, are people who are kind of cultural Christians. So you've, you've, we've been using that term a lot lately, I know, but I think Colossians kind of fights that. You've grown up in church, you know about Jesus, but you've never studied the roots of your faith. So I'm always blown away, and it happened, man, maybe more than I wish to think, working with college students, of they say they love Jesus, but then they encounter just a few professors that question their beliefs, and they completely fall apart. Or they go and they start oh man, maybe the professor made a good, good point. And they go and start watching uh, vlogs or they watch a, or listen to a podcast and start reading books that promote ideas that are not according to Christ. And their faith is shipwrecked. And they're like so confused. They're being lured away. And then when I go and talk with them, I'm like, hey, have you been reading anything else or listening to anything else that actually talks about the validity and the certainty and the reason, the, the logic behind the Christian faith? No, I haven't been doing that. Why? <laughs> Why are you only listening to one side? So I would say if you're kind of a cultural Christian, you've been, and you feel like you're, you are teetering on man, what you believe, I wanna challenge you to go and dig deep into the Christian faith. Man, I know he just passed away, at least I'm told he was, Ravi Zacharias, I guess this weekend passed away. Man, he's a, he is a library. Man, like we, we lost an amazing hero of the faith in losing him. But he has so many books and resources and videos um, that would help you see the roots of your faith and that you, you're not just believing in wishy-washy, made-up stuff. That there is truth, there is historicity, there, is, there are facts behind our faith. J.P. Moreland, Craig Williams, I think Craig Williams, yeah, um, are great people to listen to and to study. We could list a billion more we're not going to. The third thing I would say, challenge you with, if you, if you as a believer, you don't feel like you're teetering and struggling there, then keep sitting at the foot of the waterfall, keep being captivated by Jesus and you're not gonna be led astray. He is what you're looking for. I'm gonna pray for us and then our, our worship team's gonna come up and we're gonna sing one more song uh, and we'll be closing soon after that. God, I pray that if there are folks here this morning that maybe have been in the process of being lured away and didn't realize it, that you would wake them up. That you would draw them back to yourself and realize that you are what they're looking for. That there's no one better than you. And God, for those that maybe are struggling with their faith because they have some questions or even those that aren't struggling with their faith but they will because they've never dealt with the foundation of their faith and why we believe what we believe, I pray that you would wake them up to do some research so they would realize that we are not afraid of the truth because you are the truth. I pray they would know that when they look for answers, they're going to find that we stand on solid ground. from a historical, even scientific, 
archaeological perspective, we stand on solid ground. And more than that, we stand on the solid ground of your word. God, I pray that if someone doesn't know you this morning, you would draw them to yourself. They would repent from their sin and turn to you, believe in you, confess you as Lord. And they would have the, the courage, the boldness to reach out to us online or to talk with me after the service. And Lord, for believers, I pray that as we sing this song, you would just stir our hearts for you. And like Paul did, that this song would be an argument to ourselves that, that you would continue to lead us to be captivated by you. And that we, as we realize that you are better, that we, as we argue to ourselves, preach to ourselves that you are better, that we would sit at your feet captivated to not be led astray and be taken captive by empty, false worldviews, by empty, false ideas. And we trust that you're going to speak clearly to us as we respond and as we sing. So your name we pray. Amen. If y'all would stand and sing with us. If you are encouraged by today's talk, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcast. The goal of the venue is to help you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus by being relational, helpful, hopeful, and real. Thanks again for listening to the venue podcast.